And his dying words were revealing. You have conquered Galilean. Julian's words were a reference to Jesus and an admission of defeat. The emperor realized that in just 300 years, Christianity had overwhelmed paganism and had prevailed as the religion of the empire. Pagan Rome had become Christian Rome. Who would have thought that today, in the early years of the 21st century, we would witness a revival of ancient Roman paganism? It's making a comeback. Paganism is the attempt to tap into and manipulate the power of God without any real allegiance to God. It's amoral spirituality. It requires no love or loyalty. There's no such thing as orthodoxy or truth or right belief. God is reduced to a blessing dispenser. You plug in the right prompts and you get out the desired result. Today, paganism goes by the title, The New Age. It claims all kinds of spiritual techniques for self-betterment, astrology and crystals and meditation and positivity and channeling, etc., etc. Paganism is the promise of special knowledge apart from Christianity and the Bible. Remember the wise words of King Solomon in Ecclesiastes, There is nothing new under the sun. We'll learn today that much of our modern spirituality was shared by the heretics in the first century town of Colossae. The Bible exposes New Age religion as not new at all. The New Age is simply a repackaging of an old lie. Well, chapter 1 begins. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossae was a small Greek village in what is today western Turkey. It rested on a hill a hundred miles upriver from Ephesus. Colossians was the only letter Paul wrote to people that he had never visited. The church in Colossae was probably a byproduct of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. One of the converts was a man from Colossae named Epaphras. After he became a Christian, Epaphras went home to start a church. Well, the Colossians' faith flourished until false doctrine put a chokehold on their growth. Pastor Epaphras, himself a new Christian, realized he needed help. And so he traveled a thousand miles to Rome in order to consult with Paul. From a Roman prison, Paul pins this defense of Christian orthodoxy while dissecting the Colossian heresy, a form of paganism that's later called Gnosticism. Well, he continues in verse 3. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And here's the greatest gift you can give a person. Prayer. Paul was praying for the Colossians. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Notice, faith, hope, love. Commentator R.C. Lucas refers to faith, hope, and love as apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. These are the marks of a real relationship with God. 
You see, the Colossians were flirting with dangerous doctrine, but this didn't nullify the good and godly in these folks. Paul saw problems, but he also saw potential. He writes to correct, but first he acknowledges what was right. And notice verse 6, the Colossians had rested their hope on the gospel. He says, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. The year was 62 A.D. Just 30 years had elapsed since Jesus' resurrection. Of course, this was before the days of motorized travel, printing presses, radio, film, internet. Jesus had left the gospel in the hands of a few fishermen all gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem. What kind of progress would you have expected? Amazingly, Paul says that in three short decades, no corner of the Mediterranean world was untouched by the gospel. It had spread. In fact, according to verse 6, everywhere it went, it was bringing forth fruit. As it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Who also declared to us your love in the spirit. Whenever believers embrace grace, spiritual fruit results. Well verse 9. For this reason we also since the day we heard it do not cease to pray for you. And please pay attention to how Paul prays for these Colossians. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. You know, when we pray for someone, we usually pray for the person's health and happiness. Our praying focuses on their physical and material welfare. But Paul prays for their spiritual condition. Not for thrills, but to know God's will. Not to walk safely, but to walk worthy. Not for fluff, but for fruit. Not for an increase in income, but for an increase in insight. Not for possessions, but for power. Hey, if you pray for me, I hope that you mimic this prayer that Paul prays for the Colossians. And then he also prays for all patience and long-suffering with joy. I hope you're asking God to help you endure difficulties. And not begrudgingly, but with a smile on your face. With joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. You know, we're not on probation, guys. We've been qualified for blessing. This is God's desire for us. And he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. The imagery here is of a victorious general who relocates his conquered foes. You and I have been conquered by Jesus. Now he's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his love. And then verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 
In ancient Roman slave markets, people were bought and sold. But on occasion, a benefactor would purchase a slave in order to set him free. And as slaves of sin, this is what Jesus has done for us. He's offered his very blood to settle our debts and to set us free. But Paul's getting ahead of himself here. For to correct the heresies in the church at Colossae, before he extols what Jesus did, he first expounds who Jesus is. And from verses 15 to 19, Paul provides us one of the Bible's most majestic descriptions of the deity of our Lord Jesus. In fact, if we were reading in the original language, we'd notice a rhythm to the words. Scholars believe these verses made up a well-known hymn that was sung in the early church. These truths were so vital to Paul that he put them to a catchy beat so they'd be easier to recall and to memorize. And each of these points that Paul makes shoots down a different pagan heretical assertion. I think to appreciate what Paul is teaching, we need to understand what he's fighting. For starters, one of the pagan ideas in Colossae was that of dualism. That both good and evil were eternal. Roman pagans believed that the material world was evil while the spiritual world was good. Thus, since God is spirit and holy, he would never handle anything material and thus evil. This complicated creation. Since the creator couldn't touch anything tangible, he created by proxy. That God sent out emanations from himself or personifications of himself to do the dirty work of creation. They taught that these reverberations or these revelations of God were like a rock splashing into a lake, creating you know, intermittent ripples coming out from the rock, that each ripple was a little less divine than the one before it until finally a ripple evolved that didn't even know God, that was completely evil and thus could create the world. The heretics in Colossae, they believed that the pleroma was their word, the pleroma of God, His nature or the divine essence, that which makes God God, was sort of chopped up like fine pepper and sprinkled out over the entire religious spectrum. Jesus was one of many different emanations, according to these heretics, along with other gods and angels and gurus and holy men. The Colossians said that there was nothing unique about Jesus, that he was just one of many links to God. These heretics in Colossae believed God could be found anywhere, in anything. Sounds like today's new age. And because spirit is good and matter is evil, if Jesus was the Son of God, He could have never created the physical universe, let alone inhabit a fleshly physical body. This is why the heretics oppose the humanity of Jesus. You see, no one living in the first century could deny that Jesus lived, that he existed. There was too much evidence. But they said he came as a ghost or as a phantom. They concocted fanciful tales of him walking on the beach but leaving no footprints. You know, John addressed this heresy when he wrote, That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, And our hands have handled concerning the word of life. 
Jesus did come in human flesh. John said, we touched him. We held him. We saw him. We know. In John chapter 4, verse 3, John joins Paul in directly refuting this heresy. He says, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And of course, we can see where this heresy is going. For if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, he couldn't have been crucified. These heretics denied the cross's role in our salvation. This is why Paul wrote in verse 14, of our redemption through his blood. You see, rather than salvation by the cross of God's only son, these heretics in Colossae believe that salvation came through spiritual enlightenment or gnosis. This was the Greek word for knowledge. Special knowledge, special wisdom was what they sought. They taught that a person needed the hidden knowledge of God's many different emanations. In later years, the Gnostic heresy or the Colossian heresy would grow into what was called Gnosticism from this word knowledge. You see, to these heretics, Jesus was not the end-all revelation but merely a starting point in a quest for spiritual discovery. They refused to see Jesus as Lord. Like many people today who follow New Age religion, the Gnostics looked for God in all the wrong places. And yet in verse 15, Paul is clear in his understanding of Jesus. He begins, He is the image of the invisible God. The term image means exact representation. Not just alike in form, but in substance as well. You know, a stone statue is similar in shape to its human subject. But stone isn't flesh. The two objects are not comprised of the same stuff. Jesus, though, was not only God's lookalike. He was of the same substance as the Father. What God is, Jesus is. Jesus is fully God. And he was the firstborn over all creation. You know, the chief Gnostic theologian would later be a heretic named Arius. In the third century AD, Arius used this verse to infer that Jesus was a created being and not truly divine. Arius said that Jesus was firstborn. Thus, to be born meant he was created. And if created... He couldn't be the creator, and if not the creator, then he wasn't God. Today, Jehovah's Witnesses echo the Arian heresy and believe that Jesus was less than divine. But the early church fathers, they settled this at the Council of Nicaea, headed by a man named Athanasius, who correctly explained that the term firstborn referred more to status than to birth order. Exodus 4 verse 22 called Jacob the firstborn even though he was born after Esau. In Jeremiah 31 verse 9, Ephraim is called firstborn over his older brother Manasseh. You see, biblically speaking, firstborn is a title of authority and preeminence. Thus, as the firstborn over all creation, Jesus is not part of God's creation, but he is over His creation. Jesus occupies first position. Jesus is first rank. For you NASCAR fans, in NASCAR terms, Jesus sits on the pole. (laughs) 
Jesus is CEO of God's creation. And then verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. What you can see through either microscope or telescope was created by Jesus. As one theologian puts it, there is not a square inch of creation about which Jesus does not cry out, this belongs to me. And I love the next line. All things were created through him and for him. Have you ever wondered why you were created? Why do I exist? Well, here we're told we were created through Jesus and for Jesus. You know, if I drove my truck into the ocean, I wouldn't get very far. For my truck was not made for underwater travel. If I drove it off a cliff, I'd crash. For my truck was not designed for in-air flight. But on the freeway or on an old country road, my truck does just fine because that is what it was designed to do. And likewise, you were not designed to simply go about your work and play and party and earn and spend and save and sleep and eat and toil and try and sweat and cry and eventually die. You were designed for more. You were created for Jesus. And you will never, this is why you will never know real fulfillment apart from a relationship with Him. And then verse 17, and Jesus is before all things, and in Him all things consist. Jesus is not only the creator of the universe, but He is its sustainer. He holds it all together. Column's law of physics states, That like charges repel. You know that. Yet in the nucleus of every atom, there's a cluster of protons with like charges. What binds them together? What is this mysterious atomic glue? Well, the Bible says it's Jesus. That he holds all things together. And not just atomically. He's holding together my life and my family and my sanity and my schedule and my health. And my ministry. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 tells us that one day the elements will melt with fervent heat. At some time in the future, the sustainer, our Lord Jesus, is going to release his grip. And the physical universe will vaporize. It lushers in the new heaven and new earth. And notice Jesus is the head of the body. The church. Hey, who is the head of Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain? Not the pastor. Not the elders. Not the congregation. Not even the church secretary. (laughs) Jesus is our CEO. And why wouldn't we want him to be? I'm a human with clay feet. He's God. I can't get grass to grow in my front yard. He's the creator of the universe. I get tired walking up a steep hill. He's the sustainer of all things. Why wouldn't we want Jesus to be our head? Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead? 
You know, in the Bible, a number of people are miraculously raised from the dead. But Jesus is the only person to be resurrected, never to die again. He's overcome death. That in all things, he may have the preeminence. Add it all up. And Jesus isn't just a ripple from that original splash. Jesus is the big splash. Jesus is the rock. And he should be treated as such. Look at the top shelf of your life. And if there's anything there other than Jesus Christ, you need to knock it off. It doesn't belong there. Clean off that top shelf. And make sure nothing is crowding out or rivaling your loyalty to Jesus Christ. Verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. Here again, that word fullness. It's the Greek word pleroma. The heretics taught that the fullness or the essence of God had been sprinkled out. But Paul says, no, you find it in one place. In fact, one person. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the sum total of all that God is. The knowledge of God isn't scattered about. All the knowledge of God has been found in one location, in Christ Jesus. And by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of this cross. Verse 21, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. As I explained earlier, Greek dualism rejected the idea of God assuming human flesh. Yet for Jesus to pay our debt, to reconcile us to God, he needed a body that would bleed. For it's by his blood that he presents us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If. Notice the next word. If. And yes, this is a big if. I hope you know your salvation is conditional. It's conditional. It's if indeed you continue in the faith. Notice verse 23 is not just that you have faith. It's that you continue in the faith. See, faith is not a one-time profession. It's an attitude in which we must persist. You know, you can't avoid this verse and others like it. The New Testament's full of them. Saving faith isn't just a faith that believes once and then fades away. It's a faith that keeps on believing. True faith perseveres. Believers should be grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Here's a verse that's meaning is greatly debated. Roman Catholics use verse 24 to support the idea of purgatory. You've probably heard of purgatory. 
that somehow, somewhere, the cross of Christ isn't sufficient for our salvation. So we have to help complete or fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And so in purgatory, we suffer for sins in this lifetime so that we're purified in preparation for heaven. But to this idea, the New Testament, all the New Testament disagrees, including Paul later here in Colossians. Here's my take on the meaning of verse 24. You recall when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. The Lord asked Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Paul was hassling the church, but Jesus took it personally, didn't he? Why are you hassling me? And this is where Jesus still suffers today. He no longer suffers physically as he did on the cross, but he suffers in empathy when his church is persecuted. Persecution continues even today around the globe. And we fill up or we help bear the sufferings of Jesus when we show concern for his persecuted church. Thus verse 24. Now Paul speaks of the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints. Notice this, the church is the unveiling of a mystery that in Christ We have been united to God and at the same time united to one another. He says to them, that is is us, the church, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And here is Christianity's most stunning feature. This is what sets it apart from other religious ideologies. Christianity is not a philosophy that you learn. It's not a set of rules that you obey. It is an occupation of the human soul. That Christ comes to live in me. This is not imitation. This is impartation. You see, I can watch LeBron James dunk a basketball a million times. I can take note of it. I can watch how he leaps and how he jumps and how he goes and how he hangs on the rim. I can watch the whole deal. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to become like LeBron James and dunk a basketball. I'm not going to become like LeBron and dunk that ball through imitation, no matter how hard and how much I scrutinize it. But what if you took the spring in LeBron's legs and then put that spring in my legs? Impartation. Oh boy. At least I'll be dominating 50 and overs, that's for sure. (laughs) And you see, likewise, it's impossible for me to consistently live the Christian life by simple imitation. If I don't have it in me, I won't consistently be able to live it out. Thus, Christianity is more than imitation. It's impartation. It's Christ in me. This is the hope of glory. 
Paul adds in verse 28, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The term perfect, it means mature. Paul isn't saying here that we can be flawless, but that we can grow up. We can lay aside heresy and walk in truth. And this was Paul's goal for the Colossians. He says, to this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Chapter 2. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Colossae and Laodicea were both sister churches. They were in close proximity to each other. Paul trusted that they too would read this letter. And he hopes for them that their hearts may be encouraged. Being knitted together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding. To the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now remember the heretics in Colossae. They claimed that they were the secret keepers of God's mysteries. But Paul disagrees. He says wisdom and divine knowledge isn't found in Eastern mysticism. Or in Jewish legalism or in Roman paganism. It's found in Christ. He says, in Christ are hidden all of the treasures. See, where do you go to know God? Where do you go to find the things of God and the resources of God? There's only one place. In Christ Jesus. William Randolph Hearst was one of the richest men of his day. He had a vast, expensive art collection. One day he was thumbing through a magazine when he saw a painting that he considered exquisite. He coveted this masterpiece. He sent his aide out, armed with millions of dollars, to purchase it and add it to his collection. Well, after an extensive search, this man returned with the painting. Randolph Hearst asked him, he said, how much did this cost us? He replied, nothing. We found it in our warehouse. (laughs) See, Hearst had the painting all along, but he never realized it. And so it is with God's treasures of knowledge and wisdom. In Christ, we all have God's riches in reach. And yet the false teachers in Colossae were telling the believers there that they lacked the divine resources. Paul says, no way. In Christ, we lack nothing. We are complete in Christ. Verse 4. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you. With persuasive words. Boy, deceivers use big words sometimes. They they use sophisticated arguments that sound so impressive. Don't be gullible, Paul says. Lofty language doesn't make it true. Years ago, a junior hire won first prize at the Idaho Falls Science Fair by showing... How conditioned people are to believe that anything labeled science has to be true. Well, in his project, the young man urged people to sign a petition demanding strict controls on the chemical dihydrogen monoxide. And and for numerous reasons, good reasons, dihydrogen monoxide can cause excessive sweating and vomiting. It's a major component in acid rain. It can cause severe burns in its gaseous state. 
accidental inhalation of this chemical can kill you. It causes erosion. It decreases effectiveness in automobile brakes. It's even found in cancerous tumors. Folks were alarmed. 86% of people polled supported a ban on this chemical. Only one person realized that dihydrogen monoxide is another name for water. Sadly, some believers are just as naive when it comes to spiritual rhetoric. Just because a man uses spiritual sounding verbiage, I call it holy hype. It doesn't make it true. Complicated and convoluted isn't the same as deep. If an idea isn't taught clearly in the pages of your Bible, then reject it. No matter how spiritual it might sound. See, Paul continues, he says, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. You see, Christian maturity is being rooted in the basics. Learning to walk by simple faith. This is what we should strive for. As you have received Christ, so walk in Him. And yet rather than stick with the truth about Jesus, the heretics in Colossae, they were collecting a diversity of spiritual experiences. Oh, they wanted to expand their religious horizons. Have you ever heard anyone say such a thing? They sampled elements from other religions to build a faith that suited their own tastes. Rather than possess a true and pure faith, they arrogantly felt that they were among the spiritually elites. They had outgrown Christianity. Be careful when you think that. You know, I've been a Christian now for over 40 years. And I can tell you, the deepest truth I've ever learned is that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I will never outgrow that truth. That is bedrock. That is where I grow. That's where I want to be rooted and grounded. Be careful when you think you've outgrown it. For Paul writes in verse 8, he warns us, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. This new spirituality cheated believers out of a real relationship with God. It was steering Christians away from Christ. Any ritual or philosophy or tradition or spirituality that exalts itself above Jesus is a ripoff from Satan. He says, for in him that is in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Rather than sprinkling the pleroma or the essence of God across creation, God put all the eggs of revelation in one basket. Listen, Paul says that all of God is found in Christ. And if Christ is in you and you are in Christ, 
then you have all access to everything God through faith in Jesus Christ. You never have to go outside of Christ to receive from God. You're complete in Him. And so much so that no amount of ritual or good works can add to that status. You know, the Colossian believers were Gentiles, but the false teachers were Jewish. And Judaism majored on rules and ritual. Thus, legalism was part of this heretical mix going on in Colossae. Especially circumcision. Of course, in the Old Testament, God required His people, the Jews, to circumcise their males. It was a symbol of commitment. It's amazing. At the primary physical pleasure center of a man's life... He bore a mark of loyalty to God. It was a mark. But the false teachers in Colossae were making physical circumcision mandatory for Gentile believers. Paul disagrees with this. Verse 11. He says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christians don't need to be physically marked for there's... A spiritual circumcision, a circumcision made without hands occurs when Christ transforms us on the inside, when he deals with our desires, when his spirit cuts off our fleshly longings and replaces them with his love. For Christians today, this gets illustrated in baptism. Paul writes in verse 12, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him, Through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. See, baptism is now the symbol of what circumcision foreshadowed. The old life is cut off in circumcision. The old life is buried in baptism. Whereas in both we rise with new life in Christ. Verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Our salvation occurred on the cross. You know, when a person was nailed to a Roman cross, the tribunal would nail a list of the laws that that person had violated to the same cross. Here Paul says that the entire law was nailed to Jesus' cross. That Jesus died to satisfy all its demands and in doing so put an end to the law so that we would never be guilty of breaking it again. He ended life for us under the law. In other words, it's not rules that make you right with God. It's Jesus. It's faith in Him. This is what makes us right with God. You know... When Kathy and I got married, we didn't agree to a list of rules. That wasn't our relationship. She didn't sign up to always scratch my back at night. Nor did I sign up to always take out the garbage. We took a vow to live a committed relationship and to give our all to each other. Not follow a set of rules. Now, does she scratch my back some nights? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I think she plans on doing it tonight. (laughs) And do I take out the garbage? Definitely. In fact, I definitely plan on doing it tonight. But we do it not because of some rule, 
but because it's in our hearts to love each other. And this is how God wants us to live. Not by rules, but in a committed relationship, a love relationship with our Lord Jesus. Boy, a lot happened on the cross. Verse 15 tells us, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The cross was God's decisive blow against Satan. Jesus disarmed the devil, stripped him of his authority. Now the only power Satan has is that which you allow him. You know, when a Roman general returned from victory, he led his defeated foes in tow. His enemy was made a spectacle, a trophy in the general's triumph. And that's what happened to Satan. He fell because he refused to glorify God. Yet at the cross, his defeat did just that. Verse 16, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. And people will try. They'll try to judge you. Some Seventh-day Adventists teach that if you don't worship on Saturday, on the Jewish Sabbath, you're headed to hell. Paul says you should know better. What we eat and when we worship doesn't get us closer to God. We cross from death to life, from wrong to right, through the sacrifice of Jesus and Him alone. The Jewish feasts and Sabbaths were merely pictures of the work of Christ. They were symbols. In verse 17, Paul refers to them as a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. You know, when I finally get home after a long trip, I don't hug and kiss my wife's shadow. I hug the real thing. If I only hugged Kathy's shadow, you'd think I was a shady person. (laughs) And the same is true with people who get caught up in observing certain days or diets. They're focusing on the shadow. Friends, let's hug the Savior, not the symbol. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility. And worship of angels. You see the Gnostics taught that angels were ripples of God's revelation. Paul sees an obsession with angels as a distraction. All of God is found in Christ. Not angels. People who get fixated on angels, he says, are intruding into those things which he has not seen. Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And not holding fast to the head. That's Christ. From whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. How do we grow? By by getting fascinated with angels? No. But through the head, through Jesus Christ. Hold on to Christ. You know, sadly, I know Christians who are always going off on tangents. It's as if Jesus is not enough. It's not enough for them to walk with Jesus. They need a hobby horse. Angels or fasting or feasting or some some other kind of peculiarity. Hey, don't forsake Jesus for anyone or anything else. Jesus is all that we need. Verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world... Do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. 
which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. If we died with Christ, why are we living by these do's and don'ts? These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and the neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, there's a lot that can make us appear spiritual without making us spiritual. But you're not really spiritual at all. You know, religion is full of ways for people to show off spiritually without becoming more kind and more loving. That kind of spirituality is a step back from Christ. We are complete in Him. We grow up through simple faith.